Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Much of the talk before the general election in Spain on Sunday was about the rise of the far right. But in the end, it turned into a very good day for the moderate left, with the Socialist Party of Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez emerging as the clear winner. His path to forming a government is less than straightforward, though. I'll be exploring his options in a moment with Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. I'll also be talking today to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, about Monday night's rally in Pittsburgh by Joe Biden, the former US vice president, who has launched his bid to be the Democratic candidate in the race to the White House next year. But it's Spain first, and Guy Hedgeco is on the line from Madrid. Guy, the result of the election in Spain was inconclusive as expected in that no party won an overall majority or anything close to it. But there were some very clear winners and losers nonetheless, isn't that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, the obvious winner was uh, the Socialist Party of Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez. Um, you know, he won 123 seats. Um, it was by far the party with the most seats. Um, and also making it um, you know, an even better victory for the socialists, the, the, the runners-up of the popular party, their sort of arch-rivals, um, they had an appalling day. They lost half of their seats. So it was a very clear victory for the socialists. Um, another party that performed quite well was Ciudadanos that came in third and really ran the, the, the popular party quite close. Um, and you mentioned the far-right um, Vox. Um, they made their debut in the in the Spanish parliament by getting 24 seats. So those are 24 seats that they didn't have. So, you know, they're seen as a, as a party which made substantial gains as well on the night. Um, it's worth reflecting for a moment on, on Sanchez, isn't it, and how he has turned his career around, if you like, because this is a man who was once sacked as the leader of his party. And uh, it's quite a remarkable turnaround for him, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, he's now sort of seen as the, the great survivor of Spanish politics. I think that was a sort of mantle that was given to Mariano Rajoy, his predecessor as prime minister for a long time. But Sanchez, even though he's only 47, he is seen as a sort of great survivor. Just You just look at his short frontline career. Um, you know, he led the Socialist Party to two um, historic uh, defeats in 2015 and 2016, um, which puts uh, his his career in jeopardy. And, and indeed, as you say, he was essentially kicked out of the leadership um, by the party shortly after that second defeat. And then in a very unlikely turnaround, he came back, won the party primary a few months later, led the party again, became prime minister last summer in quite unusual circumstances without winning an election, but by by winning a no, no confidence motion against Rajoy. And then here he is a few months later, sort of having taking advantage of his um, his position in in the polls, which is he's been leading polls for re- in recent months, and winning this election really very very convincingly. So it's been an extraordinary uh, few months for Sanchez. And how has he done it? What, what's his appeal to the Spanish electorate? Well, I, I think a lot of it has had to do with the fact that that simply him being prime minister, him holding the office of prime minister, has helped him because as soon as he won that no confidence motion last summer, um, his party started to lead polls. And there was this sense that, um, whereas before when he was leader of the opposition, perhaps there was a sense that he kind of lacked a certain amount of credibility or, or a certain amount of gravitas, um, that he wasn't taken entirely seriously. And as soon as he actually held the highest office, he automatically gained a certain amount of gravitas. Now, you could argue that it had absolutely nothing to do with um him and the way he he exercised power, it was simply circumstance. But that has given him a kind of weight and that um, helped him in polls. But also he realized very early on 
when he became prime minister, that he wasn't going to be able to carry out a lot of the structural reforms that he wanted to, whether it was to education or to labor reform or whether it was on tricky uh, issues such as euthanasia, which he wanted to regulate. So he kind of abandoned those kind of issues. And he looked at other areas where he could make kind of big gestures um, and kind of appeal to his uh, left wing base um, without getting caught up um, in parliamentary difficulties. Now, I'm thinking here, for example, of um, the idea of exhuming the body of uh, General Franco. Now, that has turned out to be much more complicated than I think he imagined. But that's an example of a sort of big gesture that appeals to the left um, and which could win him votes. Obviously, the people on the right don't like it. But um, another example would be welcoming the Aquarius migrant boat um, a few months back. Um, you know, that was something that didn't have to go through Parliament. He could do it and it, it got international attention. People on the left, many of them liked it. So that's been the kind of, um, those have been the kind of policies that he's pursued. And to a great extent, they seem to have uh, shored up his his support. One other thing I think is important to mention, I think a high turnout in Sunday's election <clears throat> was crucial in terms of his victory, um, because I think he and the socialists in general managed to um, send out a message to Spaniards that um, if if socialist voters and left-wing voters didn't turn out in big numbers, then there was a worry that the right and the hard right were going to make big gains and do well. And that message seemed to have worked. So he has, as you mentioned there, his party has 123 seats in Congress, a 350 seat Congress. So um, it's a big gain on what they had before the election, but it's still a long way short of a majority. So what are his options now in terms of forming a government? Well, I mean, his most obvious uh, ally is to his left, that's Podemos, who actually suffered some some losses. They only have 42 seats now, um, which is a disappointing result for them, but it's a rather predictable given their, the, the problems they've had in recent months. But they're the natural ally for the socialists. Pedro Sanchez seems keen to team up with them. And dur during the campaign, the socialists and Podemos really um, seem to have a kind of no aggression pact and seem to get along very well. And there was obviously a, ke a chemistry there between them. So it looks as if they will team up. But I think what, social, uh, what uh, Sanchez would like to do is not form a, you know, a formal coalition. He would rather have a sort of confidence and supply agreement, the kind of um, uh, the partnership that he had going over the last 10 months uh, with Podemos and other, other parties, whereby they had no direct impact or direct um, involvement in his government. Um, all the ministers were his own appointments from the Socialist Party. Um, but he was getting parliamentary support from Podemos and others. So Podemos is the most obvious one, um, but he will have to look elsewhere as well to smaller regional parties. Um, and possibly he will need, um, if not the actual uh, positive backing, then certainly abstention votes in an investiture, um, in, in an investiture session in Parliament of uh, Catalan and Basque pro-independence parties. And that's where things get rather more complicated for him. But it looks as if he will need some kind of uh, help from them if he is to become prime minister. And where does uh, Podemos stand, Guy? Are they also, um, would that party like to actually form a coalition or are they amenable to the confidence and supply arrangement that he favours? Well, I think the talks that the, the, those two parties have are going to focus a lot on that because Pedro uh, pa Pablo Iglesias, the leader of Podemos, does seem keen for this to be more than a confidence and supply arrangement. He would like 
Podemos to have some ministers um, in the government. Um, now, I think that could be a bone of, of contention. I spoke to a, a senior socialist advisor last week, and he said that, you know, generally the socialists and Podemos do get on, but when it comes to the economy, um, there are, you know, there are uh, differences there. Um, you know, Podemos are more sort of protectionist, uh, you know, areas like housing, um, they have a, a, a different approach to the socialists. Um, so I think the socialists would certainly prefer to keep them away from those kinds of portfolios. Um, but ultimately, we don't know. Um, Podemos are going to be pressuring for, for ministerial posts, I think. Um, but I don't think we're going to um, see any major uh, deals being announced until after the European and regional elections, uh, which take place on May the 26th. I think it's after that that we'll start seeing the results of negotiations. There was a lot of attention given, Guy, before the election and during it uh, to the 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 Vox party, the far-right party, because it had done well in a regional election in Andalusia prior to that. It won 24 seats. Was that a, a good result or not? Well, I think it was probably on balance a middling result. Um, I mean, j- just the mere fact that Vox is in the parliament now is significant. I mean, it's kind of a, a symbolic significance because, you know, we've never seen a far-right party in the Spanish parliament before. So there's a novelty um significance there. Um, but clearly, you know, two dozen seats in a 350 seat chamber is is pretty, uh, is going to, they're going to have a pretty minimal impact when it comes to legislation and day-to-day business in the parliament. Um, and I, there's a feeling that perhaps, you know, Vox is slightly disappointed because there were forecasts that were giving them up to 40 or 50 seats, which would have been, you know, sensational. Um, so, you know, clearly in practical terms, they're going to have a limited impact um, but the fact they're in the parliament, that now gives them a new institutional platform from which to deliver their message. So, um, you know, we're, clearly they're not going to go away. And clearly, you know, that will um, benefit them enormously as they try to raise their profile um, in the coming months. Now, there's no question, Guy, that it, it was a disastrous uh, election for the, the popular party, Partido Popular, which until very recently was the party of government. What does the future hold now for that party, do you think? Well, I, I think a lot is going to depend on these elections on May the 26th, the European and municipal and regional elections. Um, because the, the leader of the popular party, Pablo Casado, he only took control of the party last July um, and, you know, he's 38 years old. You know, he's this sort of young face of Spanish conservatism, supposedly. And he obviously had this very clear idea about the direction in which he wanted to lead the party, which was further to the right. Um, and he did that um, in a very strident way from the moment he took over the party. And he seemed to be almost trying to compete with Vox, um, trying to eclipse Vox, because I think he and others in the party were nervous about um, how Vox was was performing in polls last summer and start, it was starting to become a threat. So he felt he should move to the right, and that would um, that that would eclipse Vox, um, and and he would, would be able to keep his own voters. The problem was, what seems to have happened is that um, many popular party voters have been unconvinced by Casado's lurch to the right and have drifted to Vox anyway. And then those more moderate popular party voters have looked elsewhere. Um, and it seems like many of them have looked to Ciudadanos. Um, and so he's kind of lost out in in, in both ways. Um, and, you know, in many countries, Pablo Casado 
would be a dead man walking, um, having lost an election in such convincing fashion. But you've got to remember that, you know, Spain has this history of party leaders losing elections or losing a couple of elections in a row and continuing. You know, Mariana Rajoy lost um, lost two elections in a row quite convincingly, and he hung on and then won in 2011. Pedro Sanchez, as we just mentioned, he lost two, two elections uh, very badly before winning this one third time round. So, you know, in Spain, they don't have that kind of culture of resignation that, that's, you know, we have in, in many other countries. So he may be able to cling on, but a lot will depend on those elections in May. Now, Guy, the, the Catalan independence issue kind of hung over this election in, in a major way. The election, as we know, took place against the backdrop of the ongoing trial of Catalan leaders involved in organising the, the independence referendum in, in 2017. Many of them are in jail now for over a year. But when you look at the result, uh, the parties that were most exercised about Catalan independence probably didn't do as well as, uh, obviously didn't do as well as the Socialist Party. Uh, does this suggest that the Spanish people aren't as exercised about this issue as some of the politicians are? Or would that be to misread the situation? Well, I, I think, I mean, it's an interesting result because, um, you know, the, the, the party that, that performed the best in um, in Catalonia was the Catalan Republican left, which made some pretty big gains. And, you know, there. That, that's a party that has a long, you know, long tradition of uh, advocating independence for Catalonia. Their leader, Oriol Junqueras, is one of those who's in jail and who is on the, uh, facing this trial for rebellion in the Supreme Court. Um, and they perform very well, but you have to bear in mind that they they have moderated their discourse very much in recent months. So although they're still advocating independence for Catalonia, they're doing so from a sort of slightly different position to the one they were holding, say, in 2017, when they were pursuing a unilateral roadmap to independence. Now they're saying that they want to broaden the um, the social base uh, for social support for independence. They want to get um, more of a majority in Catalonia on board so that they can push ahead um, with, with independence. Um, and they are also talking about the need to negotiate with Madrid. Now, that's a more uh, moderate um, approach to the independence issue than that taken by Junts per Cat or Together for Catalonia, the party of Carlos Puigdemont, you know, who's who's in exile in uh, in Belgium at the moment, and, and who's still taking quite a um, you know relatively radical line on this issue. So his party didn't perform as well, um, and you know the ERC, the the Catalan Republican Left, uh, performed better. And another party that performed well was were the Catalan Socialists who. You know, they're a unionist party, but they take a sort of a fairly moderate approach to uh, the Catalan issue, the same way that Pedro Sanchez does. Um, you know, they want to engage with the Catalan government um, and find a sort of negotiated way out of uh, the crisis. So, what that tells you, I think, is that on both sides, both the pro-independent side and the unionist side in Catalonia. Um, perhaps people are moving towards the centre in terms of you know a more moderate way out of this. And they're slightly rejecting the more radical positions on this taken by both the political right in Spain and, um, you know, Carlos Puigdemont in, in Belgium. Um, so th- that's an interesting development of this election, certainly. And um, no doubt it will still, I, I guess it will be one of the major challenges that Sanchez will, will face if and when he does get his new government in place. I'm wondering, what are the other major items on his intrigue guy? What other issues exercise Spanish people t- during this campaign? 
Well, I mean, it, it's hard to see other issues because the Catalan issue um, was was dominating so much, and particularly, you know, the political right focused on it so much, um, and they tried to make that the central issue. But you know, Pedro Sanchez, um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, he has you know certain reforms that he would like to um, introduce, you know, to the education system. Um, he would like to sort of, to a certain degree, roll back a labor reform introduced by the Popular Party a few years back, um, and which uh, many on the left blame for uh, for introducing too many precarious uh, jobs into the, the Spanish economy. Um, you know, he'd also like to look at certain social issues um, like euthanasia. Um, and you know, the, the socialists pride themselves on being the party or one of the big parties that supports um, gender equality. So I think he'd like to uh, pursue those issues. And also remember that on June the 10th, in theory, um, the remains of Franco are due to be dug up and um, dug up from his mausoleum outside Madrid and buried somewhere else. I think, you know, Pedro Sanchez would dearly like to see that happen finally after all the legal problems he's had in, in um, pushing that, um, that exhumation through. Um, I think if he can see that happen, um, you know, just in a few weeks time, that would be a sort of a, a good way for him to sort of begin his next government or a, a prelude to his next government, even if it's, you know, as a fairly symbolic measure. But I think he would dearly like to see it happen. And how long, Guy, now can we expect this process of forming a government to take place? Are you suggesting everything now would be put on hold until after the European elections and then talks will begin in earnest? Yes. I mean, I, I'm sure there will be some kind of, you know, talks behind closed doors going on before then. But I think um, apart from anything else, you know, the parties are going to be focusing their energies very much on on the election campaign for May the 26th. So they're not going to have much time to to, to be talking about um, forming the government. And also, I think, you know, they want to be careful about what they say before that election. They don't want to be committing themselves to um, alliances or policies which might somehow um, cause them problems in the, the May election. So they're going to be very careful about that. So I think that's right. We're not going to hear much uh, in terms of developments about uh, alliances or coalitions or governing partnerships until at least the beginning of June. And even then, it could take quite some time. You know, Traditionally, Spain's um, sort of transition from one government to another following elections can be quite slow. Obviously, in tw- back in 2015, it took months and months, and eventually it led to a repeat of that election in 2016. Um, It's not coming to that yet. And I think most Spaniards are hoping it won't come to that. But it can take a long time. It can take weeks. This may even take months. So we might not see a new government in place uh, for months. But I I guess there's no real time pressure in this case in the sense that obviously the the party of government won the election, if you like. So they do have a mandate to, to continue. Yes, I mean that, that's the feeling that um, you know the, the socialists are the obvious party to form a new government um, because their lead is so clear. Um, you know the the popular party is in, is in such disarray now and is reeling so much from its defeat that it doesn't really feel in a position to even talk about trying to form a government. So you know the socialists are holding all the cards at the moment. It's certainly not going to be easy for them to form a government because they have to, going to have to talk to all these different parties. Um, in some cases, the, the negotiation is going to be very tricky indeed. But certainly, there's a feeling that they are in a strong position. They have the foundation uh, to try and form a government. They're in a much stronger position than they were just a few months ago when they had just 
84 seats um, in Congress, and that made them the, the weakest government ever in modern Spanish history. So they're in a much stronger position than, than that now. Okay, Guy, we'll leave it there. Thanks for that. That was Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent in Madrid. It's to the US now, where last night, Monday, in Pittsburgh, the former US Vice President Joe Biden held his first rally since announcing his intention to seek the Democratic nomination for the race to the White House next year. Let me tell you why I chose Pittsburgh to uh, begin this effort. I believe that Pittsburgh and my native town of Scranton and my hometown of Wilmington and Claymont, they represent the cities and towns that made up, make up hardworking middle-class Americans who are the backbone of this nation. That's not hyperbole, the backbone of this nation. I also, uh, I also came here because, uh, quite frankly, folks, if I'm going to be able to beat Donald Trump in 2020, it's going to happen here. It's going to happen here. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, is in Pittsburgh and she attended last night's rally and she joins me now from there. Suzanne, tell us about the rally last night. Were the crowd fired up in the way we're used to seeing at, at similar events given by the US President Donald Trump? Yes, it was very much the traditional rally. Um, a lot of supporters queuing outside for some time, flags, badges saying Biden for president, etc. Um, so that was a real sense of energy uh, at, the, at the rally. In saying that, uh, Joe Biden was in very comfortable territory. Significantly, he chose Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania as the, the launch, launching pad, if you like, for his campaign um, in, in a very direct way. He's trying to make a pitch for the, the white working class, um, regular American vote that Democrats feel uh, uh, absconded to the Republican Party in the campaign in 2016. And he was very directly direct about that. Um, he got on the stage saying, hello, folks. He was back to his kind of folksy persona. Uh, it was in a union hall, the Teamsters Union there. And earlier in the day, he had received endorsement from the main firefighters union. With That's a union with more than 300,000 members, so not insignificant. So they had a very strong presence um, at the event. Uh, but, you know, he, when he got on stage, he said, you know, and one of his first comments was, if I'm going to be able to beat Donald Trump in 2020, it's going to happen here in Pennsylvania. And with, you know, I need your help. So he is very directly saying that... Uh, he thinks states like this, this kind of Rust Belt states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, that were traditionally would have voted Democrat and who uh, defected to Trump, if you like, in 2016. He believes he's the man who can win those back. Uh, and uh, Pennsylvania, for example, it's not an early voting primary state. That's obviously Iowa, New Hampshire, etc. But it is significant. And most it, it looks like Democrats will have to win Pennsylvania in order to secure a path to the White House in 2020. And did we learn anything last night about the type of campaign we can expect from Biden and, and what the major themes are likely to be? Mm. Well, a lot of uh, the theme of his appearance yesterday was was very much focusing on the value of work, uh, the importance of labour, uh, and also the need to kind of rebuild the backbone of America, as he called it, the middle class. So he talked about, um, he said at one point, the stock market is roaring, but you're not feeding it. Um, you know, ordinary Americans are not feeding the $2 trillion tax cut. Um, he pledged to double the minimum wage to $15. That received cheers from the crowd saying we need to reward, reward work in this country, not just wealth. So a very kind of, um, you know, economically left wing message. Obviously, a lot of parallels with Bernie Sanders here, actually. Um, Bernie Sanders did do very well with these kind of voters in the primary the last time around. So I think, you know, listening to him last night, uh, that seemed to be his biggest um, 
adversary, if you like, because, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has a lot of the same things, but uh, significantly for Sanders, he is very against trade deals, for example, that, that a lot of people believe did uh, harm the prospects of a lot of people in these areas of the United States. Joe Biden, of course, supported NAFTA and controversial trade deals. So I would not be surprised if this becomes um, a subject of controversy and of debate between these two candidates as the uh, campaign continues. Is he good with the crowd, Suzanne? I mean, will he, will he be relying mm. on these kind of rallies as a major uh, mm. plank of his campaign? Well, I, I think, it, I mean, the, the issue is, I mean, the, one of the main problems, I suppose, for Joe Biden is, is his age. He's 76. And when you see him up close, if you like, you know, you, re, you do see that age. Um, in saying that, um, he was engaging. He was vibrant. He did stumble a bit here and there over his, his speech, I felt. But he undoubtedly has a huge charisma and presence. I mean, the only the only other candidate I've seen recently is Kamala Harris. And I have to say, at a similar event, and Joe Biden, you know, was, was way ahead in terms of energy, I think, and, and charisma and connecting with the crowd just on a personal level. Um, and this is his brand. And he's unapologetic about this. One problem last night was that he was very, very vague on detail. You know, there was no kind of big policy promise uh, on health care. That's, that's going to be a big issue, I think. He talked about, you know, the need for Americans to have a better healthcare system and, and talked about, you know, his own experience when his son died. But of course, he was somebody who was behind the, the rollout of Obamacare. So he's, he's probably going to be questioned on that, um, you know, during the campaign when it really gets going. And also, uh, I think he, he stopped, for example, he stopped short of endorsing Medicare for all. That's an issue that other candidates have endorsed. So, you know, we didn't see much in detail, but I, I think he's, he's comfortable with that. I think he is trying to present as somebody who can can steady the ship and can win. The, the electability issue is huge. And, and I spoke to people in the in the crowd and they all said the same thing, that they believe that Joe Biden will win. Um, and that seems to be the huge issue in the Trump times we're in for so many Democratic voters, that maybe if, if Joe Biden arguably would never have, have run at this point in his career if Donald Trump was not in the White House, but he is pitching himself as the kind of alternative to Trump, someone who's experienced, who's a steady hand uh, and can bring back kind of character and moral authority to America at a time when he says uh, this has been lost under the Trump administration. And it was interesting, Suzanne, when he officially launched his entry to the race in a video last week, he didn't hold back in attacking the, the character of Donald Trump. I believe history will look back on four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation, who we are. And I cannot stand by and watch that happen. What did you make of that line of attack, Suzanne? Yeah, it, it's very interesting because most of the candidates have not gone for this aggressive attack on Donald Trump when they launched their campaign. Again, they stress what they were going to bring to the White House, what they wanted to do for America, not focus on the president. But Joe Biden has come out fighting on the, on the Trump issue because I think, as I said there, it is his strongest card. That, that there is the belief that he is best positioned. Uh, now, we're early days, this may not happen, but there he, he is convinced and his supporters are convinced that he can win over the disaffected white-collar voters that helped propel Donald Trump to the White House uh, two years ago. Um, now, yesterday in the speech, he did mention Donald Trump, not as strongly as he did in his, um, his opening video campaign launch, uh, but he did, he mentioned the synagogue shootings and again, didn't directly mention Donald Trump there, but was talking about kind of the character of the nation, et cetera. But then uh, later in his speech, he um, he more directly 
uh, chastised Donald Trump, accusing him of being the first president who decided not to represent the whole of the country, saying, you know, presidents are supposed to represent all Americans. And he talked about, we need now to choose someone who's going to champion unity over division and truth over lies. That got a huge cheer from the crowd. Uh, so I'd expect as the campaign progresses, he may, you know, go stronger on Donald Trump. Um, he has, before he even announced, he at various points called out Donald Trump, uh, the way, for example, President Obama has not. Uh, so I, I expect that, that you know, this will return to his kind of rhetoric as the campaign goes on. And I think it will probably be quite effective for him. You mentioned his age already, Suzanne. I'm glad you brought it up because I was afraid people might think I was ageist if I asked the question. But I mean, it's yeah. unavoidable. He's he is 76. He's four years older than Trump, who was himself the mm. oldest president ever mm. elected. So how much of a handicap do you think that will be for him in the campaign? Again, I think we're in a very particular moment in American history, you know, in electoral history. Um, Donald Trump is such a divisive figure um, that I think many people would vote for somebody like Joe Biden just to try and get Donald Trump out of office, whereas they would never vote for him in another scenario. Um, I, I just think the, the rules have changed slightly in this election. Um, the other issue is that a lot of the candidates serving or, or running for election for the Democratic nominee are our old Bernie Sanders being one. Um, he's 77, I think. Uh, Elizabeth Warren would be in her 70s if she was elected. So, it may not be as big an issue as it might have been in other years because there are a number of candidates um, from from that era. In say, and as I said, the, I think the value of experience is something that people value now. After I spoke to somebody yesterday and they said, um, we know what we got when we elected an outsider, Donald Trump. Personally, I want to elect an insider, is what he said to me. So um, I think there is that kind of value on experience. In saying that, where this is going to be a problem is within the Democratic caucus itself. Obviously, at the moment, there is a real division um, that has opened up, I think, since the midterm elections between the younger, more progressive wing of the party and the older, more establishment uh, part of the party, represented by people like Biden and, of course, by Nancy Pelosi, who, who herself is, is, is of that generation. Uh, so how that tension is resolved is going to be played out in the Democratic primary campaign. We have a lot of younger candidates, um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Um, we have Beto O'Rourke, for example. Uh, and then, of course, there's a call from a lot of people that it should be a more like the idea of, of electing a an older white man is not reflective of where the Democratic Party is right now when it is so energized by candidates on the left. Uh, so I do think that this is going to come, become an issue for him once those debates uh, get going. And that's going to be the real first test of how to gauge how, how people are performing. Joe Biden is a the, is the front runner by a long shot at the moment, according to all polls. But but that is to be expected in a sense because he has such name recognition and he is a former vice president. But he may may well lose some of that um, that head start, if you like, as the campaign um, continues. So the first debate is in June in Miami, and I think that will give a real sense of how he interacts with other candidates, how he deals with these criticisms, and whether the age issue is going to be a problem. Because polls do show, for example, that he does not do particularly well with people under thirty. Bernie Sanders is the opposite, actually. He performs very well there. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the polling develops as the months go on. I suppose if he does make it through, he could uh, use Ronald Reagan's old line when he ran against Bob Dole and said he he wouldn't seek to exploit his opponent's youth and inexperience in the campaign. (laughs) Um, But I I presume the the attraction really um, or the advantage that that Biden would bring, you know, the, the selling point, if you like, I suppose, would be that his ability to perhaps lure moderate Republicans who are disenchanted with Trump and maybe never liked Trump and might lure them to vote for a Democratic candidate uh, in next year's election. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, there's, there's so many 
voters of that profile. For example, I was in St. Louis, Missouri last year before the midterms and I, I, I met these kind of workers in their late 50s, 60s, union men their whole life and they had voted for Trump. But they, I remember them telling me that they would vote for Joe Biden. You know, that the people were prepared. They were so disaffected with politics. They were prepared to give Trump a chance. But there, I think there's a certain cohort of voters who have kind of given him one chance and, and may not vote for him again. And um, they don't particularly like him. Um, they're ready to be swayed by somebody else. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump has his hardcore base. But I think in these swing states and these mid, mid you know, Midwestern, as well as the more Rust Belt states, um, there's definitely more of a swing vote there who may swing back. This actually was illustrated in the state of Pennsylvania, where I am now. Pennsylvania went to Trump, um, but it was traditionally a Democratic stronghold. But in the midterms, Republicans did very badly. Um, there were a lot of reversals in Trump's success there. And that suggests that there's a core vote here in Pennsylvania, a huge state, and um, that um, is going to swing back or is prepared to swing back uh, to Democrats. Um, so that, I think, is the Joe Biden selling point. And yesterday, before he was introduced um, by a union man um, who gave a huge endorsement for, uh, about the, the firefighters endorsing Joe Biden. And he he said, he, he was a very powerful speaker, he talked about how Joe Biden will be the voice of the unions, et cetera, which would be expected. But he also talk, said explicitly that, the, you know, they feel that going too far left is dangerous, that the Democrats really will not bring the country with them if they if they go that way. And that even though a lot of these other candidates have very good and very high-minded ideas and ideals, that might not equate to winning the election. So I think Democrats, as I say, this overriding feeling of electability uh, is, is the reason, is, is, is providing this momentum behind Joe Biden at the moment. Um, obviously, he's only declared a few days, so all candidates get this bump at the beginning and then they fade back. We saw that a little bit with Beto O'Rourke, for example. Uh, so it remains to be seen how it, how it plays out. But in the next few weeks, he's going to the first early voting states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. So we get a bit more of a feel um, for how he is uh, connecting with the general public then. And in contrast to Biden, of course, there's Bernie Sanders, who on the face of it anyway, is a candidate who would less appeal or less likely to appeal mm. to the centre ground. But he has really hit the ground running again this time, hasn't he? Yeah, his fundraising again has been huge. His popularity among younger people has been really impressive again. Um, but I mean, I think there's an irony here for Bernie Sanders. He was, you know, the trailblazer for this socialist view um, that did so surprisingly well in the Democratic primary um, scene the last time around. Um, but And this has kind of been hijacked, if you like, I think, by some of the newer candidates, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, etc. And, you know, has his time passed in a sense in one way? He is again older again this time around. Um, and he's, he's, you know, he, it's a much bigger field, so it's, it's much more difficult to stand out. Um, I think he's going to still have that problem of getting past that core base of supporters. Certain amount of his supporters are going to go with Biden. And there's an overlap there. And I think that's why Bernie Sanders actually has been, I think, the one candidate who's who's um, targeted Joe Biden so far. Um, he put out a statement, I think, in the last few days saying that criticizing Joe Biden for accepting corporate money for example. So, you know, it's interesting he's attacking Biden because I think that that suggests that he's, he's worried about him uh, taking some of his vote. Uh, but he himself visited Pittsburgh last, in the, you know, in the last month, I think, and, you know, quietly met with union leaders here. So, you know, he's making he, he's making his own inroads to these kind of voters uh, that Biden would would feel would be um, would automatically vote for him. 
so he's definitely one to watch, of course. Uh, but again, it's just more difficult for him, I think, to stand out once this gets going with so many candidates running this time. And so many, there are 20 declared as a stand, mm. Suzanne. Does anybody else um, kind of stand out as a, at this early stage as a kind of potential yeah. th- threat to Biden? Well, according to the polls at the moment, um, Peter Buttigieg uh, has really emerged as the surprise candidate. He's the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, and he declared and it didn't make much of an impact initially. And then his campaign has really, really got momentum. He's got huge media coverage here. Um, He did a huge CNN town hall debate last month that really upped his profile. And he's really high in the polls among Democrats. Um, he's a very interesting candidate. He is a gay. Um, he is a former uh, Rhodes Scholar in Oxford, Harvard educated. He also did a tour of duty in Afghanistan. Um, and, and most intriguingly, he's a Christian, a very proud Christian. Um, so he has already kind of got into a rhetorical battle with Mike Pence, the vice president, who, of course, is also from Indiana. Um, but he's really taken off at the moment. and There's a lot of energy behind him. Whether he'll crash and burn, of course, is very possible. And um, again, there is the issue of how much, you know, how how much he, inroads he could make into this kind of more conservative, moderate Democratic vote. Um, but again, his religious views, etc., his, his experience in the military would win over a lot of those voters. So he's definitely one to watch. Beto O'Rourke is a very strong candidate. He's the Texan former congressman who took on Ted Cruz for the Senate seat last year and did lose, but did very, very well. Um, he's just been in California this week uh, and he's been talking about climate and the kind of a new deal policy on climate change and investment. Um, he's kind of, I think, lost a little bit of momentum, but is very likely to come back. He's a very strong performer, really connects with people in, in that kind of Joe Biden way. He's got a, a lot of compassion and um, he talks about unity as well and, and rising above the divisions of politics. Uh, so I think he, he's not to be underestimated. Uh, but at the moment, I think it's probably Biden, Sanders and Buttigieg. They seem to be ahead of the polls. Kamala Harris is still doing very well. And there's a lot of debate as well about why women candidates are not getting as much media coverage, essentially, that Elizabeth Warren, um, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Kamala Harris a bit more. But, the, you know, that, that really it's down to these a lot of the white men, essentially, again. So there's a lot of introspection here in the United States at the moment about why that is the case this time. Okay, and and finally, Suzanne, just in terms of the timetable, I mean, the primaries don't begin until early next year, I think. Mm. But uh, are we now really into the 2020 election cycle already? Yeah, I think we probably are now. I mean, this weekend, the real sense is that, that, you know, attention in Washington is turning to the Democratic race now. And um, the... I think the first debates are going to be key. That's in June, as I said, towards the end of June in Miami. And you're going to have um, over two nights all the Democratic candidates. They have to reach a certain threshold, but most of them probably will. And they will be debating against each other. That will be a big prime time TV event. And then I think it's really going to get going. Then over the summer, we'll have events in Iowa and New Hampshire and places like that. Uh, And then there's going to be more. uh, I think it's another debate, Democratic debate in September in the early autumn. Um, As you say, though, we're still a long way from uh, the primary in Iowa. That's um, the end of January, beginning of February next year. But no, I think we're, we're very much beginning now campaign mode. And it's just a lot, you know, there's there's so many candidates this time, 20 candidates. It, it's much more like the Republican primary last time around that it just does give that different dynamic. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be a steady stream of coverage from now through the summer, uh, but really cranking up uh, in the autumn ahead of the primaries early next year. Suzanne in Pittsburgh. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.